This is episode 108 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And this week, I can now say week, uh, we We said it regardless, but now it actually makes sense. Yeah, it would. (laughs) It's It's still a period of time in which the podcast was done. We are focusing in pretty pretty nicely into uh, into California and uh, exploring the diversity of uh, king snakes in in California as a patreon episode if I'm not mistaken yep you're quite correct this one was requested by our patreon Max McLaren so thanks a lot Max great suggestion and Max wanted an episode about mounting king snakes and we've done the classic thing we've had a look and um no one's published anything that recently on mounting king snakes so we well nothing substantial enough i feel like there were a few like little notes and things popping up but uh yeah it's not been uh it's not like there's been a sort of radio tracking study of them that we could dip into or anything like that recently so we've gone for a paper from back in 2013 and it's by myers rodriguez robles donado staub stropoli ruain and Burbrink, and it's multi-locus, phylogeo- multi-locus phylogeographic assessment of the California mountain kingsnake. Lampropeltis zonata suggests alternative patterns of diversification for the California floristic province, published in Molecular Ecology, as the wordy title would suggest. And yeah, we're talking about Lampropeltis zonata. So this is the Californian mountain kingsnake, the California mountain kingsnake. It's quite a smallish sort of snake grows to about 120 centimeters long or four feet if you're in the states and uh, yeah it's a really striking little creature isn't it really it's got that classic tricolor king snake milk snake coloration with a rich sort of red black and cream bands and the characteristic shiny little head that king snakes also have that's precious precious it is glorious creature and uh they go around they're, they're found um at altitude on the mountains in california they eat lizards small mammals nestling birds bird eggs amphibians they eat animals basically uh, occasionally they'll even eat snakes and they have been known to be cannibalistic um Lampropeltis, the genus is known king snakes are called king snakes because they eat other snakes the king of other snakes so it's no surprise that they occasionally eat snakes even their own kind and they tend to be um, active in the dawn or dusk or nocturnal. So they're either crepuscular or nocturnal. But if it's very cold and they can't come out at night, they'll sometimes venture out in the day. And um, they tend to just sort of mooch about in the rock formations up in the mountains. Um, see them in rock crevices a lot. And the authors of this paper, essentially, they wanted to find out, um, probably spurred on by some other findings about the biogeography of other um, both animals and plants in the area. There was a paper about turtles, which suggested... Yeah, pond um, turtles. Mm-hmm. That's right. There's some interesting biogeographic stuff going on with the pond turtles and a, a split that they could recognise between the two mountain ranges. And the story was similar for agave, which is like a, a cactus-type deal, right? Um, it's a plant. And there was a paper... I'm not, I'm not sure about cactus, but like succulent. It's, it is, it's squishy. It is, you can squish You can squish the leaves. It's, that's... It, that's it's about as technical one. as I feel like we should get. Yes, I agree. Um, also, you can use it to make... Um, what's that really horrible tasting liquor? Tequila. Oh, tequila's lovely. 
Yeah, tequila is a pretty uh, divisive issue. I mean, I don't dislike it as much as I used to, um, but not not a huge fan. Anyway, um, yeah, so the authors of this paper were like, right, okay, well, we've got these mountain ranges in California. And if you imagine, bring California to bear in your mind, we're on the West Coast of like America. Flag. Pardon? Bringing California to bear like their flag, which has That's a bear confusing. on it. Oh, it has a bear on it. Yeah. I, I was like, oh, really? Okay, that's, that's a nice... <laughs> that's a nice I apologise for throwing you off your... Uh, <laughs> Mate, I didn't even know it had a flag, there. to be honest. Um, I should have been able to tell it had a flag, though, because I knew that Texas had a flag, and if one state's got a flag, likelihood is they'll all have a flag. Everywhere's but got yeah, a flag. If you look at California, you've basically got uh, a range of mountains along the coast, and then that kind of hooks around at the top and bottom. So you've basically got like this really long, elongated sort of... Um, what do you call an elongated sphere? Oval. It's like an elongated mm-hmm. yep. oval of mountain ranges with a big flat area in the middle. And they looked at this mountain range and they knew that there was uh, mountain king snakes all across this kind of oval shaped mountain area. And we're talking about, you know, there's a few different ranges here. You've got the Sierra Nevada. You've got the transverse ranges. You've got the southern coast ranges, the northern coast ranges, the Klamath Mountains. All of these areas which all contain these... Um, California mountain king snakes and they just wanted to see like historically biogeographically what is going on with this species what is their history are they all one species are they all closely related have they been split in historical times and can you see that in their genetics so they did a genetic study and a couple of episodes ago we were talking about the children's pythons weren't we oh yeah and the the complex splitting yeah, and slightly. I mean, like differences in uh, color and how that wasn't exactly matching up with, or lack of differences in color and how that wasn't matching up with maybe the species that were present. Mm-hmm. Well, when we were doing that paper, we were kind of championing their genetic methods as being quite futuristic, next generation sequencing, as they call it, extremely high coverage of snake genomes in order yeah. to make inferences about the differences between the species well this paper you know it's from 2013 we're going back a little way this is kind of at the opposite end of the scale where they're not quite not quite the opposite because they're doing multiple loci they're looking at multiple places in the genes these stuff that they're coming after the stuff that sort of spurred this paper to look a little bit more detail only used what was it mitochondrial dna and that Oh, there's some suggestions that maybe that's not 100% reliable in some scenarios. So it's... Okay, yeah, you're right. It's not fair to say it's the complete opposite end of the spectrum here. It it is still a step up from what has been done in California beforehand. Like you mentioned, the turtles and stuff. Yeah. You know, there are suggestions. I would say, yeah, it's a step up where the other paper is 20 flights of stairs up. Okay. (laughs) So, yes, there are a few gene regions, but really the coverage they've got here is pretty small. It's like a few regions um, compared to like the thousands and thousands of locations that they were looking at in that children's pythons paper. It's pretty old school. But yeah, like you say, it is still a step up. And these things always happen iteratively. So, you know, that's not to say it hasn't got value, although we will discuss some of the like sort of i don't know it doesn't seem to the main findings of this don't seem to have been adopted by everyone which to me is like kind of suggestive that it's not been completely accepted but we'll get on to that that's jumping the gun then um so yeah we've just sort of described the top topography of california where you've got this like big sort of ring of mountains with a basin in the middle and um yeah they looked at the genes of these two 
of the sort of snakes from all around this ring. And they found that actually there's two very distinct um, lineages. Group, lineages, yeah. Two very distinct lineages. And one is kind of from the sort of northern and eastern mountains. And then the other one is from the kind of coastal mountains that run along the coast and then uh, trail down to the south. And so what they've said is that snakes from the peninsular ranges in the transverse ranges north into the coast ranges and just south of Monterey Bay are Lampropeltis multifasciata, which is uh, a species which they describe in this paper, although they don't put a proper species description. So I'm guessing well, I think they're it's, really, a, it, it's because it's an elevation. It's an elevation yeah. from subspecies to yeah. species, right? So previously there was um, Lampropeltis zonata multifasciata and Lampropeltis zonata zonata, and they're saying actually there's justification for making multifasciata its own species um, because they are geographically distinct. Split by this sort of... Monterey Bay is essentially your point of split, for lack of... You know, there's there's obviously a little bit of gradation there, but Monterey Bay is serving as your your delineating point, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Monterey Bay is the kind of line. And then what's interesting about that is because... They looked at how long ago these splits were, and you can do that with the genetic information that they collected. And they reckon that this. Do you split... want to explain? Do you... That seems like a weird concept. Like looking looking at a looking at a gene, looking at another gene, and then being able to work out how different they are in sense of time. My my sort of like basic understanding of it is you've got these areas of gene which are unselected upon, right? They're highly conserved between species and stuff and if they're not selected upon the variation between them's just sort of incidental it's just drift yeah yeah so the you know the the longer they've separated the more they've drifted apart and what's nice is that's a relatively stable uh, like set rate yeah and because it's not selected upon it's not like something's pushing that to change rapidly or slowly because that if you just look at the genome at a whole the pace of genetic change could be impacted by the selective pressure right but if you've got areas that are highly conserved and not subject to selective pressure they tend to change at a set rate right so then you work that rate backwards okay if they're this different you can work that rate backwards they must have been more similar at this point right or at least that's that's my understanding of it is you pick these areas of the genome that essentially don't that aren't selected upon they're nice and stable and you just look for slow drift and then measure that yeah that's cool so you measure I how much so. they've drifted like over time <laughs> i mean I, <laughs> that's that's the way i've always understood it now I've, the chances are i've butchered that well i think it's as good as a description as we're going to get so let's stick with it and uh, <laughs> let's stick with it and if, <laughs> if you do know and can correct me please uh, drop us a nice succinct <laughs> description of all the ways that i'm wrong yeah in 100 words or less so um yeah there's so yeah we've talked about the fact there's some mixing in the monterey bay area and um it what's interesting is essentially back in the and we're going back a couple of million years here ben but a couple of million years ago um the central valley which is in between all these mountain ranges the big california basin which is now termed uh, the sacramento basin and the san joaquin basin um they're both one big basin really and yeah two million years ago sea levels were higher and 
water inundated that entire area. So that was a massive um, inland sea rather than being a basin as it is today. And that sea essentially separated these two lineages of snakes. They couldn't cross it because they're little tiny snakes. They weren't about to cross some major inland sea. And so over the course of many thousands of years, they've evolved to be separate species, as the authors of this paper suggest, because of that um, separation. And the reason it's interesting that the only place there's some overlap genetically is the Monterey Bay, is that that is the point where the two species actually kind of cross over or like have an opportunity to meet. So there's a little bit of mixing in the Monterey Bay area. But aside from that, they're completely separate. And um, that combined with the fact that the climate is slightly different uh, between the two populations, uh, they use as evidence to elevate multifasciata to a new species, which they call, what did they call it? Oh, the coastal uh, mountain king snake. Hmm. Yeah, I wanted to just touch on the um, the sort of climatic thing, because you've got this idea that maybe they've been split at some point by some sort of biogeographical barrier. But then they also bring up this climatic difference between the uh, Californian mountain king snake and then these coastal mountain king snakes as of now. Um, we're maybe suggesting it's sort of a climate motivated uh, divergence. So there's a little bit of possible tension there over the exact driver. Um, was so they did they did um, species distribution models for the you know northern ones and the southern ones and sort of demonstrated that the split where it is you know where in reality these these two species split is the most sort of um what's the right word like most fitting <laughs> the most different in the sense of the the climate north and south so they ran all these different models with all slight variations randomly splitting all their all their locations and the uh, one that's reflecting the actual, you know, genetically uh, evidenced split seems to be the most matching with a split in climatic conditions too, which is interesting. Mm. Like it, yeah. it, it's it's nice that these are sort of matching up. I don't know the the climatic stuff. It's tricky. It's tricky because you're working off sort of current climate records, and you're talking about a split that's been happening over two million years so that i'm that i'm a little bit yeah i guess you'd have to rely on the fact that the climate is caused by those mountains to a large extent which i guess haven't changed that much in two million years yeah i don't know it's a very you know geologically active area though isn't it yeah yeah but it's just interesting that yeah they, they make the point that yes not only is this biogeographic barrier of the sea there but also climatically those two regions are distinguishably different so the two species have found themselves in you know climatically different areas which has probably contributed to their um genetic separation in some way but um yeah but i just wanted to talk about that because obviously in this paper it's very clear that they're saying okay yeah this uh, coastal king snake is separate from the california mountain king snake they're each a different species but then it doesn't seem to have been widely adopted this new taxon like if you if you search for the multifasciata it comes up on reptile database as a subspecies and i know that's not the sort of be all and end all but 
I you you know you, I can't really find any mention of this species being recognised as a species. And in the reptile database page for um, Lampropeltis sonata, they mention it as just a subspecies and say they do mention this paper and that they suggested mm-hmm. that they're different, but for whatever reason they haven't adopted it as fact. So it could be that um, the scientific community at large isn't completely buying this one. I'm not sure. Um, I wonder if it's just waiting on a little bit of. Uh like in-depth morphometric assessment as well? Because I think with two lines of evidence, it's going to be relatively case-closed, I would imagine. I I don't know. I don't know how strong this genetic evidence really uh, really is because I don't have a base to compare it from. Yeah, I feel like it's not that strong. And I also think that um, the morphological evidence isn't there because they aren't different morphologically. I swear I saw that mentioned. I think they're physically virtually the same snakes. Hmm. Um, so then, also... what this this sort of genetic difference you would put down to just sort of, you know, a, a, a ver- you know, just variation. There's, I, there's nothing I... actually separating them in terms of being able to interbreed and. Uh, yeah. You know. Well, they they the thing is it's complicated because right what have we got we've got two populations or like multiple populations that are very obviously split at least in the genetic information that we have the limited genetic information we have well, here apart from mitochondrially right yeah well this is the thing yeah there's like evidence that females have been coming one way um which that also just seems really strange to me the idea that only females have been crossing over and interbreeding they've been coming from the northern population into the southern population that just that screams to me we don't have enough information to say anything real because in no other species have I ever read that it's only the females traveling around and dispersing. Yeah, I mean, it. yeah, it, it, it does. Um, I don't know really why just one or the other would disperse in any sort of scenario given enough time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that. Um, but then conversely, you've got the argument that, like, look... They're not really mixing. They're geographically separated. They're on their own trajectories evolutionarily. If then, you know, they will eventually be separate species, provided that these mountains don't suddenly just sink into the floor. So, um, yeah, that, you know, I see the other side of it, too. Um, I just think it's kind of a, a point of interest that no one else seems to be referring to multifasciata as a species. And it's been 10 years, nearly. But, yeah. Yeah, there has been a lot of... Um... Mm, debate's not the right word but just re like i really appreciate the way this this paper frames itself as being a sort of the next step comparing it to previous ones that have maybe jumped to conclusions on weaker evidence for other species and they've thought okay well we're improving things this is what we think we've got with sort of a more in-depth multi-loci um, yeah approach which is nice which is cool the the kicker i think is that you've got these paper. I cannot remember what species it was involved in, but there was a paper about oversplitting, yeah. and it was specifically talking about a species that was occurring in the southern U.S. and into Mexico. Might have been milk snakes, might have been king snakes, but there was this whole deal about oversplitting and certain analytical methods. Basically, it wasn't even like a oh, you're doing everything wrong. It's certain analytical methods paired with a certain sort of style of sampling, i.e. not sampling enough from sort of gradients and not recognising gradients, that would over-split 
just by virtue of that's what the analysis was sort of looking to do. Yeah. Um, it's paining me that I cannot remember the paper because we should really cite that one because it's super, super connected here. Um, I think I can find it. Oh, is it uh, the multi-species coalescence over split species in the case of geographically widespread taxa, chambers and hillis? Yeah. Is it recent? 2019? Could well be it. Uh, Let's have a look. Lampropeltis. Yeah, it's Lampropeltis. It's perfect. Yeah, so American milk snakes, an over-reliance on a certain analytical technique without adequate considerations of its assumptions and sampling limitations resulted in over-splitting. So this is... But uh, wait a second. Is this paper? Is, I wonder if this paper's cited in it. What was this? Myers 2013? 13, yeah. Let's have a look. It's not. It's not brought up. Okay. But I wonder if maybe. Because they're, they're talking about a very specific method here. This uh, BPP. What is BPP? Bayesian phylogenetics and phylogeography. Okay, this is just a very broad term. And uh, I believe these guys use something quite similar. Yes, so they're using the same method, which is sort of, or a very similar method, that's mentioned in the in the Chambers and Hillis paper. So perhaps that's why this hasn't been, you know, yeah. grabbed on as such, because... There's more, maybe maybe that's sort of tending towards oversplitting, and there's nothing there. It's, I don't know. It'd be nice if there was a follow up, wouldn't there? Well, I mean, I was going to go, I was going to go searching for it, but it's almost irrelevant because we were looking for Lampropeltis studies, and uh, we didn't find them. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, I think to be honest, the bottom line is, and they even say it in the paper, as you said earlier, this is kind of a stepping stone where, yeah, they had a few gene regions, the coverage wasn't amazing. Uh, and that might be why this taxon hasn't really been adopted. They say the last line of this paper is phylogeographic histories based exclusively on, oh, mtDNA should be revisited using genomic scale data. So they are suggesting that they've got better data, but well, I think, better. and that's probably un, you know undoubtedly <laughs> they've yeah. got you know it, it, it's tripling the data quantity that the previous studies were based upon. So yeah, you know that's, tr- that is a big step up. Yeah, and then if you multiply that by a thousand you'd be laughing um basically the headline remains that the monterey bay water came flooding in two million years ago and it separated this species out in whether or not it separated them into subspecies or species is kind of neither here nor there it's a really cool biogeographic happening it yeah. undeniably happened the water receded the the king snakes are still at the top of the mountains and there's a genetic difference between the two populations which is Whichever way you look at it, relevant, um, whether or not it's justification for them being different species, I would imagine depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> I've, right. I mean, that, that, that's it, isn't it? There's something cool going on here, regardless of whether you want to assign it a new name. Mm. Um, yeah. And they had some other cool findings, like they suggest that in the Pleistocene where, you know, ice ages were waxing and waning, these snakes actually didn't experience a population crash, which a lot of species did. A lot of European species during that period were kind of confined to these small areas of suitable the climate. 
refugia exactly yeah. and then kind of expanded out subsequently whereas it doesn't seem as though these species have done that maybe their high elevation lifestyle they're already living in pretty extreme circumstances perhaps um yeah but all, yeah. The, all the wide distribution helped buffer against it yeah yeah exactly so yeah that's a cool finding too um but yeah i think regardless an interesting paper about a really beautiful snake the california mountain king snake um lampropeltis sonata uh, so yeah, I think thanks, thanks Max McLaren for the Patreon suggestion. Yeah, and um, count, count yourself lucky we found one on the species specifically requested. <laughs> I, I feel know, like that's yeah, quite usually, rare and difficult to do. <laughs> yeah, normally if someone asks for like a specific animal, it's really hard. But yeah, I mean we had to go back a bit. We went back nine years, but still cool paper. So from one slightly mystifying genetic experience to a slightly less mystifying genetic experience uh, but it's a genetic experience nonetheless let's move on to our species of the bi-week so this is a paper by Zekli Zekli Ordonez Delgado uh, Amios Oyeda and Voros and it's entitled Our Unknown Neighbour a new species of rain frog of the genus Pristamantis from the city of Loja, southern Ecuador. So we actually had a, a species of Pristamantis in episode 90. And we I think we said then, like, this is a genus of frogs, which is having species rapidly described. <laughs> and here we are. Yeah, sure enough. Right so back to the, it. Yeah, that was Pristamantis cera, which was described last year from Brazil. We're, we're positive we're not doing the same paper again, right? Yeah, I double, triple, quadruple checks, mate. Thank you. <laughs> uh, like I checked, but... I'd be lying if I didn't say some of these frogs blur into one. But, um, well, this, yeah. Oh, this, this one in particular is a little bit tricky in that regard. Oh, I like that. So, yeah, in just to give a bit of background on the genus and its kind of explosion in being so specious, is in 1979, Lynch described this new species called Pristamantis foxocephalus. Um, it was long considered to be a single species, which is highly variable in appearance, with a really massive distribution from like Peru to northwestern Ecuador. But then in 2019, uh, Piers and Ron showed that some of the populations are in fact different. Um, they're genetically different, so they represent undescribed species. And so now... Uh, everyone's kind of filling in the gaps. So this is a mixture of genetic and morphological evidence and even bioacoustic evidence of the frog calls, the noises they make. And they've can, used can, all of can that. Can you hear them? Uh, good question. <laughs> no. I don't know. No. <laughs> Did you check? I, thought I tried, you man. I tried. Yeah. They've got um, they've got like voucher numbers in some supplementary material, but I'm, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't find what the voucher numbers like <laughs> where you were right. meant to put them <laughs> it's not always easy they are they're they somewhere. are online somewhere they're, they're somewhere, somewhere we online just, <laughs> we just can't find but where two two biologists with some time on their hands didn't manage to find them so <laughs> read from that what you will uh yeah regardless we're talking about the new species uh let's talk about what they've called it and we've said it's from the city actually i don't know if we have but it's from the city of loja in southern ecuador and yeah, it's in the title oh it's in the title so we have kind of said it um 
And yeah, it's another species from that uh, Pristamantis foxocephalus group. Um, and they've called it Pristamantis lohanus, which just literally means from loha. It means belonging to loha. So Pristamantis lohanus, um, it's a rain frog belonging to tiny loha, little rain frog. which is pretty cool. How tiny are we talking? We're talking 30 millimeters SVL. Wow, cool. Teeny tiny. Yeah. And you alluded to the fact that they're quite variable in colour. They are outrageously variable in colour. They have, what, 18 pictures of these frogs? And Oh, wow. Yeah, no two are alike. Like, seriously. Um, there's one that's like orange and light orange stripies, like down its back, like this beautiful striped frog. There's one that looks like it's been, like, burnt. It almost looks larvary over a green frog. Wow. We've got we've got one with completely different markings down its side, sort of pale pale brown sides, dark brown top with with sort of lines pointing to its nose and going back back down its back. We've got just a brown splodgy one. One's got an orange chin. You know, it it's it's nuts. We've got a green one. One of the one of the um, males is like green with red orange dots going along the center of its back along its spine it mate if i was in loha looking at the frogs i'd be like there's at least a hundred different kinds of frogs yeah it's outrageous how variable they are they are mental no two are alike the only thing which seems it's not it's not consistent but by any more consistent is the blotches. Many of them have these light-coloured blotches, but right. not, not even half of them, to be honest. But it looks... <laughs> well, of, of the pictures, to be fair, we don't know what the balance is on the That's ground. True. Yeah. But, and, oh my gosh, uh, and then, no, sorry, I, I said there were like 19 pictures. There's another six for the juveniles, which are also all different and tiny and adorable. Yes. And uh, the males are also quite small. There's a picture of um, a pair in Amplexus, the mating hold, and the female is like twice to three times the size of the male um and the male there's a picture of a male calling on a leaf they did fantastically well with the photos and, oh they're gorgeous um, yeah he, he stood up on all fours with his little throat sack enlarged uh looks very pleased with himself there yeah i oh <laughs> what a confusing confusing situation for frogs in ecuador i suppose they're not confused but um i certainly am <laughs> So I thought I'd found the cool there, but it was just a link to pictures of the cools. Oh, pictures yeah. Pictures of the sound waves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see sounds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so um, what else is there of note about this species? Natural history. It's common. It's common as muck, mate. They come in all different colors. We're talking about seeing them uh, in large numbers pretty much every time you go out. They're usually encountered at night on vegetation so they sit on shrubs or branches or they sit in grass never on the ground at least 10 centimeters above it up to about two or three meters high and they tend to be close to small streams males cool all year round but mostly when it rains and yeah foresty areas with sort of human intervention so secondary regrowth forest is where they're found so they're obviously tolerant of some level of disturbance um, but only where there's native vegetation. If there's not native vegetation, they go on. Yeah, I mean, they've they've saying it's a common species, but they reckon it should be endangered because 
less than 400 kilometers squared yeah. occupied <laughs> area. I mean, you, you mean classed as endangered as opposed to, we've got to make this fucking danger. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say I reckon they should be endangered? <laughs> If you're from the city of Loha, don't worry about the frogs look all just whack any of them. <laughs> no, yeah, it's 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 small uh, area of extent as they call it, and yeah, uh, yeah threats from uh, growing pop, you know, habitat change and stuff like that. Standard yeah. fare, standard, yeah. But there you go, brand new species of Pristamantis, Pristamantis lahanus, and uh, yeah, another cool one. One in every uh, color, it feels. Yeah, really nice uh, variety of colorations there. So um, thanks very much to Max McLaren, the Patreon episode. If you want to become our Patreon, you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights. We also sell t-shirts on our Redbubble store, redbubble.com slash herphighlights. And you can get in touch with us. Gmail, uh, what is it? Herphighlights at gmail.com. And we're on social media, etc. So yeah. Awesome. Um, that's it for... Uh, king snakes on the mountains and a new species of pristamantis so thanks for listening thanks for listening